Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21 for several months now, dating back to May of last year. We as a church family have journeyed with John the beloved apostle through this account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And so we've considered specific events and specific teachings from Jesus' life, and in accord with John's purpose in writing this gospel, we've pushed in a similar direction with this one purpose, that that we would believe on Christ and would truly have life in His name. And so, a multitude of sermons from me and from other brothers over the course of months greater than a year, and you know, what a what a travesty for us if we walk away from this final sermon from John's Gospel account and are in most ways just unchanged. If we think back through this sermon series, we know that some of you actually have been redeemed as we've walked through this text together. Some have had understanding and awareness of who Jesus is and what Jesus does expanded greatly. Some of us have been convicted and strengthened, encouraged in our walk with Jesus. And so ponder just for a moment this question. How has encountering the living word, the Lord Jesus, through John's gospel account impacted you? An obvious question there is, has it? But has how has these weeks of teaching through John's gospel account impacted you. Another travesty would would be for us to walk away from this journey through through John's gospel account only having gained knowledge. We've just simply learned facts about Jesus. And so has your understanding of Christ grown? Has your has your knowledge of his word and his work grown? And as we think about learning more about Jesus, maybe a better question for us to ask is Have our affections toward Christ grown? Not just the way we think about Jesus, not just the way that we believe about Jesus, but the way that we feel about Jesus. Have our affections toward Christ grown? Has has our love toward Christ deepened as we've walked through John's gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus? And so what we'll do this morning is is try to to provide a, a, a good summary of what John did in his gospel account. If you're looking there at chapter 21, there's two verses we didn't address last week. We'll use these two verses to to serve as a springboard back into the greater teaching of John's gospel. And so John has recorded this this last event of Jesus with Simon Peter and then with John the beloved apostle. And then he concludes his gospel account with a very intriguing phrase. Starting in verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So he's providing validation to the truth of the account that he presents for the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 25, John writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be, that would be written. What a, what an intriguing way to finish. I mean, we, if, if he didn't include verse 25, we would walk away from John's gospel account and just certainly be amazed at the work and the word of the Lord Jesus. 
And then he, he puts this, this mind trigger here, this heart trigger in verse 25 and says, I only recorded just a small portion. If everything could be recorded, I, I'm fairly certain that the world couldn't contain the libraries to tell the stories of all that Jesus is and that Jesus did. And so what, what I want to do over the next few minutes is take this thought here from verse 25, go back into John's gospel account, and let's think about what John actually says that Jesus did and who John actually says Jesus was. And we'll consider three truths from John's gospel, three concluding truths, overarching truths that, that we've hit week after week after week after week as we've walked through all of these stories in this, in this gospel account. Three truths from John's gospel. Truth number one, and this is John's primary purpose in writing, to declare clearly that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And so we'll be kind of all over John's gospel account, and you're free to turn there, you're free to listen, whatever the case may be, but for the beginning point here, truth one, if you would just turn back to chapter one, and let's read how John began this gospel account, and then we'll we'll walk through some specific points but we need to understand that we need to believe that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was recording this one primary truth, that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And so he begins in verse 1 of chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So clearly, pointing to the fact that Jesus is God, the word there is the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So pointing to the fact that Jesus is God, if you skip down to verse 14, another verse we've come to several times through this teaching series, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus became what he was not before, he became a man. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when Jesus became flesh, he, the Word took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived among us, John says, we saw the glory of the very Son of God. And then he comes in verse 18 and says, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And he has made him known through the Word became... became through the word that became flesh. And so Jesus' deity throughout John's gospel is, convert, is, is confirmed through, through two, two primary avenues, and both of these happen with, with, within the context of what Jesus said and did. First, Jesus' deity is confirmed by his own words. Jesus' own words confirm his deity. Jesus, in one way or another, consistently said, I am God. Consistently said, I am God, which seems incredibly arrogant unless you are God. If you are God, it makes good sense for you to say, I am God. And so Jesus said, I am God in many different ways, but there are the seven specific I am statements that Jesus makes points to the fact that he is God. In his own words, he is saying he is God. In chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. Chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, verse 
5, I am the vine, you are the branches. All of these I am statements clear echoes back to the God, Yahweh God of the Old Testament, who declared himself to be I am. In fact, Jesus said in chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. So he's not he's not declaring himself to be similar to the Father. He's not declaring himself to be like the Father. He's declaring himself to be one with the Father. A clear a clear declaration to deity, a claim to deity. So Jesus' deity is confirmed by his own words. Jesus' deity is also confirmed by his own works. It's not just what Jesus said, it's also what Jesus did. And so John records seven I am statements of Jesus, but he also records seven specific signs of the Lord Jesus, miracles. So in chapter 2, the first miracle that John records is where Jesus turns the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, Jesus healed an official son. Word came that an official son was sick and Jesus healed the guy's son. Chapter 5, we, we, we read the story of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda that, that Jesus heals. In chapter 6, we, we, we see the miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children in the middle of a teaching event. In chapter 6, also, we following the, the event of feeding the 5,000 people, Jesus walks on water. In chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. The greatest of the signs of Jesus is that resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11. Lazarus is dead and Jesus calls Lazarus back to life. And each of these signs point in some way to the deity of Jesus. But there's something else going on in these signs that we have to be mindful of. Jesus isn't just going around performing these signs to prove who he is. Jesus is going around performing these signs to demonstrate the abundant grace of God. And in all of these miracles that we see in John's gospel, we see we see the goodness and the abundance of God's grace. And so if you think about when Jesus turns the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, remember the report that came back was, you saved the best until last. Jesus didn't do just what was good enough to get by, but Jesus went beyond all expectation. And when he healed the, the, the official son, he didn't, he didn't go and touch the boy, remember? He just, he healed the boy from a distance. He didn't even have to be in the same room with this boy. There was a, there was a, there was a crippled man who had been crippled, lame for 38 years, and Jesus healed this man. In the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus takes this one small lunch and feeds a multitude, it's not just that Jesus feeds a multitude, but in feeding the multitude, there's also leftover. This, this picture of abundance that comes only through Christ. He heals a man who, who had suffered from lifelong blindness, had never seen before in his life, and Jesus made his eyes new. In the miracle where Lazarus comes back to life, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, but he raises him from the dead after four days of Lazarus being dead. What is the design of all these signs? The design of all these signs is, is to elicit faith. It's to lead people to believe on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And what was that final, ultimate sign of Christ in John's gospel account? It wasn't Lazarus' resurrection. It was his own resurrection. It was the fact that he was dead, put in a tomb, and came back to life. That final and ultimate sign. So Jesus' deity is confirmed by his own words and by his own works. But then there's another aspect going on in John's gospel that, that teaches us that Jesus' claim to deity was actually legit. 
One, Jesus' deity is confirmed by the affirmation from his followers. We have these followers throughout John's gospel, like the blind man in chapter 9 and verse 38. The, the declaration of the blind man when he sees Jesus and understands who Jesus is, his, his, his response is simply, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And there's, there's Martha, the, the working, worrisome sister at the tomb of her brother. When Jesus shows up four days late, and Jesus begins to say, remove the stone. Remove, remove the door from the tomb. And so Martha argues with Jesus and says, no, you, Lord, he's been in there four days. The smell is going to come out of the tomb. Death is, death and decomposition is taking place in there. And so Jesus begins this, this back and forth with Martha and declares himself to be the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes on me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he said to her, to Martha, do you believe this? And this was Martha's confession, chapter 11, verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That confession of, the, of Simon Peter in chapter 21, we studied last week, where, where Jesus is affirming, one, his love for Peter, but also Peter's love for him. And Peter says to Jesus, with the question, at the question, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then that, that pinnacle of the confessions in all of John's gospel account, skeptic, somewhat doubting, questioning Thomas. Unless I see the scars, unless I touch and feel what went on with the Lord Jesus, I will never, never believe. And Jesus shows up and says, here, Thomas, touch, see. Don't, don't disbelieve, but believe. To which Thomas responds just simply with my Lord and my God. And so in all of these followers, all of these followers of Jesus, we see an affirmation that, that Jesus actually is the son of God. He's no mere man. He is the word became flesh. And so when John says we beheld his glory, the glories of the only son of the father, he's saying he is he, he is and he was categorically different from everyone and everything else. And so his deity is confirmed by the affirmation from his followers, but also his deity is confirmed in John's gospel by the opposition from his opponents. So we have a group of significant followers throughout John's gospel, but we also know that we have, we had this, this group of significant opponents. And so at the most significant declaration of Jesus, when he claims in, in chapter 8 and verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's having this conversation with the religious leaders, and, and they lay the our father's Abraham trump card on the table, implying that you're illegitimate because we're not really sure how you came about, who your father is, all this kind of stuff. And Jesus says, you really don't actually know Abraham, because before Abraham was, I am, at this they picked up stones to stone him. Chapter 10, verse 31, after Jesus said he was one with the Father, we, John records, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. When Jesus made clear his claim to deity, his rightful claim to deity, the religious leaders who did not realize who Jesus was, who opposed Jesus, sought to kill him. Why? Because in their minds, Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. In fact, the last thing that they tell they tell Pilate before Jesus is crucified is, no, he makes himself out to be the son of God. And their problem, the problem with their position, 
is that he actually was and is. And so in there hurling this accusation at the Lord Jesus and saying he makes himself out to be the son of God. They are simply affirming what Jesus has already demonstrated all throughout John's gospel account. And so John clearly presents Jesus as the Christ, the son of God. So truth won from John's gospel. What are we to walk away from deep in our hearts and in our minds and our souls as we complete this journey through John is that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. And we far too often think way too small of thoughts about Jesus. We belittle Jesus in our minds. We functionally make him just like one of us. And while it was true he became like one of us, he is not. He is different than we are. He is the son of God. And in order to become like one of us, he became what he was not before. He became a man. Like us. So that he could pay our penalty. But never did he divorce himself from being the son of God. And so John's truth, overarching umbrella truth, all throughout his gospel account is that Jesus is the son of God. Which should for us, church, cause us to worship him. It should cause us to to bow in, in, in humble adoration before him. And the reality of his divinity, the reality of his deity reflected upon our sinfulness should cause us to cry out in repentance and rejoice in the grace that is ours in Christ because he truly is the son of God. Truth number one, Jesus is the son of God. Truth number two from John's gospel account, Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save. Those familiar verses in chapter three where Jesus is having this this conversation with a religious leader, a Pharisee, Nicodemus. <clears throat> Jesus tells Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A verse likely all of us know. But then in verse 17, Jesus goes on and gives Nicodemus some clarification here. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world's already condemned. The world's already condemned. Jesus didn't have to come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world because the world is condemned. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Why did Jesus come into the world to save? Chapter five, verse 34, Jesus said, I say these things that you may be saved. Chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Chapter 12, verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. If I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Here's the thing. Here's what here's the truth we have to, to, to consider when like we would all say, yes, Jesus saves. Absolutely. Jesus saves. That's the confession of the Christian world. Yes, Jesus saves. Here's what we're saying. When we say that Jesus saves, we're, we're, we're saying that Jesus did not save himself from the Father's wrath so that we could be saved from the Father's wrath. Jesus did not save himself from the Father's wrath so that we could be saved from the Father's wrath. Another way of saying the same thing, Jesus endured the wrath of the Father through the crucifixion so that you and I don't have to endure the wrath of the Father. Jesus came to save. John teaches us that Jesus saves all kinds of people. 
One of the beautiful things about how John records his gospel account is that Jesus is hanging out with all kinds of shady characters. He saves an outcast like like a Samaritan promiscuous woman. He saves a self-righteous religious elite person like Nicodemus. He saves beggars. He saves destitute blind men. He saves prideful fishermen. He saves murderous thieves. And if you're saved, he saved you. He saved you. Just consider for a minute, as we see all the people that Jesus saved throughout John's gospel account, the company that we are in. (laughs) That Jesus saves all kinds of people. He doesn't save all people. We know that from Scripture. But praise the Lord, he saves all kinds of people. All kinds. Well, you don't know, Richard, what I've done. Just read John. Surely there's a one-up in there for you. There's someone who has done something far more dark, far more deep, far more dreadful than what you've done. And the clear picture is that Jesus saves all kinds of people. Not only does Jesus save all kinds of people, but also Jesus saves people completely. Salvation is the work of God. All of grace and none of works. Being saved by Christ means we are no longer dead and we are instantly made alive. We are no longer walking in darkness and we are immediately immersed into the light of Christ. So think back to that story of of Jesus healing the blind man in chapter 9. So Jesus heals the blind man and well, he, he puts mud on the guy's eyes and tells him to go wash. The guy never saw Jesus, never never knew what happened. He just knew that this guy told him to do this. And so he goes and he washes his eyes and once the mud's removed from his eyes, he can see. And so if you were blind, but you're not blind anymore, what are you going to start doing? You're going to start telling people. And so this guy starts piping off just all over town or all over the religious community about this one who made his blind eyes to see. And so they bring in his parents and his parents kind of sell him out. And they bring in they bring in the blind man and they eventually cast this blind man out of the synagogue because he will not shut up talking about Jesus. He will not shut up talking about this one who 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 has restored his blind eyes. And then John records this tender moment in the life of Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? So the religious folk cast out this guy. Jesus heard about that. And by divine design, he goes and finds this guy. Ask him a question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The blind guy, formerly blind guy, answered, And who is he, sir, that I'm a believe in him? Remember, he didn't, he know, he didn't know, like he did, there's no visual for this guy. For Jesus, Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. This story of the blind man teaches us that we don't come to saving truth of Christ in our own power. Our own knowledge, our own emotion are insufficient in coming to Christ. We come to Christ by the, we come to the saving truth of Christ by God's grace alone. We are blind like the blind man. And unless someone moves on us to remove our blindness and restore our sight, we stay blind. We are dead like Lazarus in the tomb. And unless someone moves on our dead lives to restore life to us, we stay dead. We need the power of Christ to move on our lives, to bring us into the light like the blind man, and to give us life like Lazarus. And unless he moves on us, we will forever be dead and forever be blind. 
And so what John does, and as he records all these events of Christ and all these sayings of Christ, he's teaching us that Jesus came to save. Jesus truly came to save. And, and he teaches us that, that, that we aren't saved by praying a prayer, by filling out a card, by walking an aisle, by being baptized in water, by having a feeling, by understanding facts, by checking off boxes. But we're actually saved by the divine grace and the infinite power of a holy God. He makes us aware of our sin and he makes us aware of the beauty and majesty of Jesus and gives us the grace to repent and believe on him. But here's the problem. Chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said, This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works uh, were evil. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. No one naturally gravitates toward light. In fact, if anyone is drawn toward Christ, toward the beauty of Christ, it's clear, according to what Jesus teaches, that you're being drawn because God is drawing you to himself. Chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In chapter 1, John makes this disturbing statement about the Lord Jesus. He came to his own, his own people, but they did not receive him. And then he goes and encourages us with this reminder that Jesus came to save. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, you know what he did? He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus came to save. And listen, if you are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, remember, Jesus came into this world to save you. To save you from your sin. And to restore you into a right and beautiful relationship with a God who loves you. Truth number one, Jesus is the Son of God. Truth number two, Jesus came to save. And then truth number three, another overarching truth from John's Gospel account. By believing on Christ, we have life in his name. By believing on Christ, we have life in his name. The word believe is used in some form or another in John's gospel account 85 times. It's clear that John's really pushing in on this reality and nature of faith. Jesus put it this way in chapter, in chapter 6, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life that they... That they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. By believing on Christ, we have life in his name. We must be careful that we don't overcomplicate what it means to believe on Christ for salvation. We must hold the cost of following Christ high. Yes, absolutely. But the path to following Christ is incredibly simple. But too often we, just in our rational, logical way of thinking... Because grace just doesn't make sense to logic. In our rational, logical way of thinking, we do a fantastic job of complicating what it means to be saved. And John's teaching us, reminding us that to be saved means by believing on Christ, we have life in his name. And so believing on Christ and having life in his name means we are loved by Christ and loved by the Father. So when we believe on Christ... We are granted life. And when we're granted life, we know that we are then loved by the Father. Jesus put it this way, chapter 14 and verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Chapter 16, verse 27. The Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. Brother, sister, do you realize that your Father in heaven loves you? That's the way he thinks about you, and that's the way he feels toward you. He actually loves you. And he loves you because of Christ. He loves you because of the work of his son. He loves you. Chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus is praying that high priestly prayer. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, wait a minute. Did you hear what Jesus said in chapter 17, verse 23? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So as the father loves his own son, deity son, God, he loves us the same. And so if you believe on Christ, you are saved and you are loved by the father. So the question that the truth here obviously brings before us is, do you love God? Do you truly love God? Do you love God in a life-changing relational kind of way? Or maybe do you just love the idea of God? Or the concept of God? Or do you just love things about God? Benefits that come from God. Grace and forgiveness and, and all, all, the, all the fringe benefits that come from God. Or do you actually love God? To be saved, to believe on Christ and have life in His name, means we are loved by God. And so here's John, this older, beloved apostle, years after the ministry and the work of Christ are complete on earth, writing and reminding us that Jesus is the Son of God. Absolutely. Reminding us, Jesus came to save. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that includes me, and that includes you. And to remind us, to teach us that by believing on Christ, we can and we do have life in His name. Sort of to finish our, our thought on John's gospel account, let's, let's turn to John's letter, 1st John, and think, John, did you ever move past all those things you wrote about in your gospel account? <laughs> That's an evidence of something that, that had a significant impact on a writer. If you read later writings and, and kind of hear the same thing, then you know that they were, they never just were able to graduate from the bare essence of what they first wrote. And so we've considered John's gospel account. Let's, let's consider this first letter of John, 1st John, chapter 1. And what these few verses teach us here is that we don't move past the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus came to save, and that by believing on Him, we can have life in His name. Look at John, 1st John chapter 1 and verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life sounds very much like John chapter 1 and verse 1. Verse 2, that life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. 
And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, for the Christian who is truly redeemed by Christ, who has truly tasted and has seen that the Lord is good, who, who truly knows grace, who truly understands the depth of their own depravity and the deeper depth of God's infinite grace, we don't move past the joy that is ours in Christ. We don't move past the joy that is ours in Christ. John, we see, never moved past these foundational truths. And so he sees, he says in verses one and two here in first John that, that we examined Jesus. We, we, we saw him. We heard him. We, we touched him. And he points to deity here again, that which was from the beginning. And also he points to humanity, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands. And so he says, we've, we've, ex- we've examined Jesus. We've examined who he is and what he does, his words and his works. And this examination of Jesus, understanding better and more clearly who he is and how he works, causes us to grow deeper in our relationship with him. And we seek this knowledge of examining Jesus for the sake of actually knowing Jesus. And so he points to examination, but he also points to, this word makes us a little uncomfortable for some of us in this room, me included. He points to experience. He points to experience. Look at look at verse three. It says that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you, too, may may have fellowship with us. You may experience fellowship with us. And and indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. There's this progression here that the life was made manifest through the Lord Jesus. We've seen the life. We've testified to it and we proclaim it to you so that you can have fellowship with us. And so we we experience fellowship. We experience fellowship with the brothers and sisters. We we know that to be true here at Redeemer. And that fellowship is rooted only in the Lord Jesus. We also experience family in the context of that fellowship. We have fellowship with us. And then John goes on to say, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So for those of us who are redeemed, we have fellowship with one another. And the reason why is because we're family. We're family by Christ and for Christ. And so, so how do we experience this fellowship in this family? We believe on the name of Jesus and we are given life in his name. And so this fellowship that's rooted in Christ, this experience that's rooted in Christ goes beyond any of the typical cultural barriers that we may experience. Religion, race, economics, preference, hobbies, background, etc. And so, John begins his letter First John, with a word of examination, and then he speaks to experience, and then he points to enjoyment. He points to enjoyment. Church, do you realize we get to enjoy Jesus? For the sake of Jesus? We have joy in Christ for the glory of Christ. That's what he says in verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And John is pushing in his letter toward this, this point that to declare this eternal glory of Christ and eternal joy for us. And so for a struggling, a suffering Christian whose joy is set in Christ and, and on Christ, that person is never hopeless. That person is never without confidence, maybe shaky, certainly in a, in a period of suffering and in a period of struggle. Yes, but there's still deep rooted joy. Because that joy comes from Christ. 
And so the joy that Christ provides for us in the fellowship of the church and in the context of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is not a joy that's dependent upon circumstances or upon situations. Our joy is rooted in the very work and word of Christ himself. And so our joy abides regardless of what comes in life and our joy leads us to triumph regardless of what comes in life. And this joy is, verse 4, complete. Complete. Lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. Isn't it true that worldly joy is always lacking? Pursuits of the world. There's always more. There's always bigger. There's always better. There's always greater. There's always a quest. We find satisfaction temporarily in something, some aspect of the world, whether materially or relationally or emotionally. And then we find that that satisfaction wanes because the new rubs off. That's not the joy that God gives. The joy that God gives by Christ and for Christ is joy that is eternally satisfying. Eternally satisfying. And so we never waver on this joy. In fact, Jesus pointed to joy in John's gospel account. John 15, 11, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Chapter 16, verse 22, You have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. In his prayer, chapter 17, verse 13, Jesus said to the Father, I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Christian, how's your joy? How's your joy? Jesus is the Son of God. He truly is who he said he is. He truly is who the Bible teaches us he is. Jesus came in the world to set into the world to save. And that's good news for me and that's good news for you. And by believing on him, we can have life in his name. And not just eternal life in the ever after, but life now. Life that is characterized by joy. And the world can bring whatever it wants. Because our foundation is on Christ, who is the Son of God, who came in the world to save. Who that by believing on Him, we can have life in His name. And therefore, we have joy. And this work of Christ continues in us and continues through us, the local church. We began by saying that too often our thoughts toward Christ are way too small. We have developed an American way of thinking about Jesus as some type of cosmic bellboy who just comes in to to help us out in situations when we're in need. And we really want him when we're in the middle of crisis. But if there's no crisis, we can handle it on our own. Which is, which is not just sin. It's also an insult to Christ. Our functional reality of how we live reflects how we believe about Christ. And far too often, we live in a way that shows that we really don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
Jesus, I want you to, I want you to make sure none of my, none of my kids go astray. But as far as what I'm going to choose for this job I'm proposed with to take, I can handle this one. Jesus, I just got a bad diagnosis at the doctor. I need your help. But I probably won't think about you again until the next doctor's appointment. Like, this is just the way that we operate. And the Bible comes at us, and John's gospel comes at us, and just explodes the deity of Jesus in front of our spiritual eyes, and we realize that we simply need to repent because we think way too small toward the Lord Jesus. And so as a church, as a fellowship of brothers and sisters, our joy is only going to be full when we really, really believe and live out this truth of Christ, that he is the Son of God. And that he came into the world to save all kinds of people. And that includes me, and that includes you. And that by believing Him, believing on him, we actually can and do have life in his name. And that's for our joy. That's for our joy. And so we're going to sing in just a moment. But before we sing, I want to have just a moment for us to pause. To think, to dwell on the majesty of the Lord Jesus. The words of the Lord Jesus, who Jesus actually said he was and is. The works of Jesus, what he did, including redeeming your soul if you're his child. And maybe in the quietness of this moment, you simply need to repent and just say, Lord, I'm sorry, because I think way too small about you. Maybe you need to thank the Lord that he's altogether different than we are, yet became one of us so that we could become children of God.